障生生为妙法，百千万劫难遭遇。我今见闻得受持，愿解如来真实意。The unsurpassed, deep, profound, subtle, wonderful Dharma in a hundred thousand million eons is difficult to encounter. Now that I've come to receive and hold it. Within my sight and hearing, I vow to fathom the thus come one's true and actual meaning. Venerable Master, Dharma friends,、uh, welcome to our sutra lecture tonight. This is the 22nd of August, and we're here in Berkeley, California. We're going to continue to look into the Ten Grounds chapter of the Abhidhamsaka Flower Adornment Sutra. So、uh, please turn to the front cover of your sutra text, and we're going to recite the name of the sutra and the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas, and do a formal invocation. That's kind of that's what this is called: is invoking the spiritual presence of the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas. Tonight is a little unusual for me in that uh, just uh, this morning at 4:30,、uh, I and、mm, half a dozen of the folks here in the room rolled out of the woods in Oregon up near Reedsport and came barreling down the coast on Highway 101 in order to make it here tonight for the Avatamsaka lecture, and、uh, we did all is well, and、um, we spent a week up in. Twenty、uh, twenty miles into the mountains, beyond cell phone range, and、uh, where the beyond where the county roads are maintained, it's back in the back. Goes from two lanes to one lane, blacktop, no paint stripe out where we are. And、uh, we looked into the Sharangama Sutra, 
under the trees and on a mountain top. It's really, really pleasant doing that. So um, out there without the distractions of the dense population of, of people here in, in the cities, the, the sutra really shines, really kind of... Uh, it's uh, easy to, to see the sutra. And so when, it, when we come back down to where we usually live here in the city... It uh, sutra takes on even more value uh, because it's it's a definitely a map. It's a way out, a way back, not out. It's a way back to something that doesn't move in the midst of all the bustle of of our busy lives. So, uh, page zero six four zero six five is where we're going to start tonight, and we already went one two three four five six seven lines down into the bottom paragraph. And I think I want to start over to get the, the flow of our idea tonight. And it's a very interesting idea. The, uh, the Bodhisattva is saying something profound and also bold. So let's, let's look into it. We'll start with the Chinese, which is on the page 064. And please, I'll give you a line and, and follow along. If you can't follow the Chinese characters... We've got romanization underneath the, the sounds of the characters and ABCs. Also, folks who are sitting in the back, back, please don't feel exiled. If you, you know, if you'd like to bring your chairs forward, that's really fine. That just happens to be where the chairs wind up. And if you want to sit much closer, please feel free to do that. Okay. Fuzi, Fuzhuan 如是无量如是广大而诸凡夫心多邪见无名复义无名复义立交曼高床入可爱网 Xing Chan Kuang my mistake again. Xing Chan Kuang Chou Lin Okay, we'll go to there. Let's look over to the right. Disciples of the Buddha. These bodhisattvas further make the following reflections. The Dharma of the Buddha is as profound as this, as quiet, as still and tranquil, as empty, as free of marks, as free of wanting, as undefiled, as limitless, as vast and great as this. Ordinary beings, on the other hand, allow their thoughts to go wrong. They're covered by a film of ignorance. 
they raise the banner of pride and arrogance. They are trapped by a net of craving and travel the dense forest of flattery and deceit until they can no longer extricate themselves. Here's the, the big idea. The Buddha is saying, uh, the, er, this is the Bodhisattva speaking, this is the Bodhisattva whose name is uh, Vajra Treasury Bodhisattva, that's his name, Treasury of Diamond, Treasury of this substance called Vajra, which is unbreakable and brilliant. He says, um, Bodhisattvas who live here in what's called the first ground, think like this. Here's the way they think. They look at the Buddha's teaching and they say, boy, the Buddha's teaching is, number one, really deep. Number two, it's really still and quiet. Meaning, when you study this teaching, it brings this tranquility out of you. A, a good word for this is serene. The Buddha's teaching is just serene. Then, it ha- then they give three things that it is that are kind of unusual as a group. It's empty, free of marks, and free of wanting. Think, why, why those things? These are three signs that have always been considered characteristic of the Dharma. And the Dharma is, is this body of teaching, but the Buddha didn't speak the Dharma as the Dharma. He didn't hand you a book and say, here's the Dharma primer, or here's the Dharma handbook, or... I'll sell you a copy or it's the collected Dharma. The Buddha was just answering people's questions, essentially. He was just solving your problem for you. People would come to the Buddha with every kind of problem in the world and he would say, hmm, hmm, probably do that a lot, kind of hmm, kind of gets you calmed down because people, when they have problems, are upset. And, and they would be upset and the Buddha would, hmm, until you calm down, and then he would say, maybe you should do this. And then he would say, well, you know, there's a deeper cause. You're looking at this much of it, but in fact, underneath the ground, there's roots to this tree. You're looking at the leaves on the tip of the branches, but those leaves are connected to a branch tip that goes to a branch, that goes to a trunk, that goes down to the roots, and if you see the whole picture, I bet you could figure it out yourself, he would say. People would go, yeah, I never thought of it that way. Like that. So the Buddha, like a wise father, like any good um, pastor of a community, helped people get the answer themselves. And then they would go, wow, that's really wise. Maybe you should do that, the Buddha would say. And People would say, yeah, I think I'll do that. And they would be so happy because they had come up with the solution, of course, it was the Buddha all along. His disciples later said, mm, I remember when the Buddha was talking to that Brahmin who was so upset. And he just kind of guided him through with some questions. And sure enough, that solved the problem. Let's write that down. And that became a sutra. So in this case, um, what is being... Now that's one kind of teaching that wound up in the sutras. But in this case... Uh, the Buddha is giving another kind of teaching, which is he's explaining what bodhisattvas are like. That's what this whole section of the sutra is about. And maybe you've wondered, 
Maybe you wonder, what's a bodhisattva like? Could I be a bodhisattva? Or are bodhisattvas way too lofty for me? Or, you know, what's, what's it like to be Guan Yin's friend? Or what if Guan Yin was more than just a name or a good story? Maybe some of us have seen Guan Yin in dreams or actually seen her in person and wonder what it's like when you're with Guan Yin all the time. What would that be like? And so the sutra is there to answer questions like that. And also about Manjushri and also about Samantabhadra and our bodhisattvas and earth store and all these wonderful beings that come alive in the sutras. That's what this chapter is talking about. What are they really like? What are their minds work like? How do their minds work? What do they think? What do they do? So this particular passage is... Exactly that. Vajra Treasury says, Bodhisattvas think like this. They say, boy, the Buddha Dharma is so empty, meaning there's, once you've heard it, there's no thing to get. It's just wisdom. It's free of marks. Your eyes can't see it. Your ears can't hear it. You can't touch it. And it's also free of wanting. That's to say, when you hear the Dharma, it doesn't stir up desire in you. It doesn't make you think, oh, one more thing I have to subscribe to. Or one more thing I have to give my email address for and hope that they don't spam me. You know, ah, One more thing I have to remember the password for. Right? Not, it's not like online stuff we sign up for. It's free of wanting. When you hear it, the Buddha Dharma seems like something you've heard before. Because why? It's wisdom. And although it comes from the Buddha's mouth, in fact, it just wakes something up that's already there. That's, you know, Plato said, all learning is simply remembering. And the Buddha Dharma is a lot like that, in that it, it comes from inside. When we hear it, we go, yo, that connects. I see how those things actually connect. I thought they were broken, but in fact, that's all one system. I never saw that before. So that's, that's the kind of how it's as free of wanting. I remember um, in the early days of the Berkeley Monastery, which was 96, 97, times like that, we used to go down to Highway 9. Remember, we have a, co- a cottage, kind of a cabin, down near Boulder Creek. And this community went down there a couple weekends and the San Lorenzo River, good Italian name, San Lorenzo. The San Lorenzo River cuts through this valley that goes parallel Highway 9. And this, among other things, this is extraneous knowledge, but this has the maximum annual rainfall in the state of California. More rain falls in that little river valley than anywhere else in California. 50 plus inches in years when Berkeley will have 30, you know, something like that. So what I'm telling you about is we went there to fix a bridge, to strengthen the bridge that leads into our property. And where the, the river flows right beside our property, the, the banks are very, very high. The river is down here. It's getting smaller with every year because we're in drought conditions. But you can see that the river, the banks are 25 feet high. And if you'll recall, people who were there, 
I know a bunch of you were who were here tonight. Um, you can see where the soil has washed away and the roots of the redwoods are exposed. And it's amazing to see how the root systems of these giant trees extend. In some places, the trees have come down and you can see the roots sideways. And what's interesting about redwoods is their roots are not very deep. I know all this stuff because I went to the Boulder Creek Library and looked up redwoods because here I am in a redwood forest. I wanted to know more. So it turns out, interesting facts about redwoods is that they grow very well in the company of other trees. Redwoods are social trees. It's rare that you get just one because why? Their root systems are shallow given how tall they are and they need other redwoods to hold each other in. Their roots do this. Today, I don't know where the rest of you had lunch who came down from, from Oregon, but we ate lunch again in the Humboldt Redwoods State Park in a, near a place called Myers Flat. And I have to say that where we ate on the way up is not the place to eat. We went two more turns into the forest and found giant, giant redwoods. So next time we go up next year, we're going to keep driving around the corner and down. And then the redwoods there are old growth. They're, these are the, the big trees. There was one right by our picnic table that had been burned at some point, And I could walk right into the tree. Because just where it was burned, into the trunk, and without even stooping. And just experienced that tree. So I took my banjo out and I played for the tree. Yeah. Looking up. <laughs> the tree did not dance, I guarantee. It was it was thus thus unmoving. The tree. But that's big. And my point is to say that the Dharma works like that. It's kinda of like when you really get a principle, you see the roots, kinda of like those redwoods that fell because the San Lorenzo Basin washed the, the dirt around, the dirt from around them, and down they came during a storm, probably. So you can see how those roots grow, and they're really extensive, going out horizontally and connecting with other trees. And the Buddha Dharma is like that. You get one principle, and you go, "Oh, that's my mind I'm looking at. Look at how my mind is actually connected at that deep level." It's not broken off from other stuff. Knowledge is, what's the word, systematic. Knowledge informs other knowledge. And we just have to go deep enough. So here he says, Buddha Dharma is free of wanting, undefiled, limitless, vast, and great. So the Bodhisattvas are saying that. Okay, here's what else they think. Flip it. On the other hand, living beings, ordinary beings, and he's talking about us, people like us, ordinary beings, on the other hand, are not those things. Profound, quiet, still, tranquil, empty, free of marks, free of wanting, undefiled, limitless, vast, and great. Ordinary living beings are what? And from here on down, we get this kind of readout on living beings. It's a little bit like an indictment. 
And I want to prepare people for what's being said here. Because if you take it seriously, it's a little bit a little bit like an affront. Who's the Bodhisattva talking about? Ordinary beings allow their thoughts to go wrong. They're covered by a film of ignorance. They raise the banner of pride and arrogance. They're trapped by a net of craving and travel the dense forest of flattery and deceit until they can no longer extricate themselves. Us, the Buddha's talking about us. The answer is yes. But he's also talking about him before he woke up. It's important. Let, let's go on with the whole line until we can get the whole picture here. The Chinese goes, Xin yu jian ji xiang ying bu she, hang zao zhu qu shou sheng yin yuan, tan hui yu chi ji ji zhu ye, ri ye zeng zhang yi fen hen feng, chui xin zhi huo, chi ran bu xi, fan suo zuo ye, jie dian dao xiang ying, yu liu, you liu, wu ming liu, jian liu, xiang xi qi xin, yi shi zhong zi says their thoughts interact with stinginess and jealousy which they never abandon. They constantly create the conditions for future rebirth. Greed, hatred, and stupidity create karma which increases by day and night. The winds of hatred and resentment fan the fires of mind consciousness whose blaze never ceases. All the karma they create is tied to inversion. The torrents of desire, existence, ignorance, and views ceaselessly stir up the seeds of mind consciousness. Wow. The Bodhisattva is saying, oh, the Buddha Dharma is so nice, so quiet, so tranquil, so serene, so pure and undefiled. But living beings are the opposite of that. And so what's useful for us as we read this is to, to ask, who is he talking about and why is he so hard? on living beings. Is that me that's being read out this way? And the answer is, yeah, absolutely. Uh, no doubt that's who the Buddha is talking about. So, living beings. Mm, again, let's go through the list. There's, um, when the Buddha is, he's, he's saying ordinary beings here, fan fu, it's not zhong sheng. Zhong sheng is the Chinese word for multitude born. Beings that are born of many conditions. Mm, many conditions means mom and dad. They're moms and dads. So you go two parents times two on both sides times two on both sides of those times two. Pretty soon you have many biological conditions. Just think of all those flows. How did my mom, kind of a southern belle who grew up in Kansas City, Missouri, happened to meet a Canadian Air Force bombardier in Scotts Bluff, Missouri, and fall hopelessly in love with this romantic French-Canadian and you know, wind up giving birth to a son in Columbus, Ohio, while he was studying to be a lawyer at Ohio State University and wind up in Toledo, and then here I am in Berkeley. You know, it's like, that's a lot of conditions. How random, not random. How precisely connected, if you see through the surface, this person named this, this man named this, this man named James, the woman named Deborah, you go, 
behind that are, is, is no mistake. Behind that are the flourishing, you could say the, the sprouting and the flowering of seeds that were planted at some point. Don't know when. But nothing happens without a cause. There's nothing random in this. And yet it's, the word is not random, it's diverse. Many, many causes. Many, many conditions. World War II was a condition for my coming into being because my dad would not have left Quebec to come to the United States to go to Germany to, to join the war if Hitler hadn't invaded in Europe. There was no Air Force in Canada, so he wanted to fly. So he came to America to join the Army Air Corps. So there's a condition. So should I be grateful to World War II? Well, that's the condition. So multitude-born means living beings come about because of all these different conditions. It's true for amoeba. It's true for eagles. It's true for all of the Canadian geese that hang out right down there by the Bay Meadows racetrack. You ever get off the uh, Buchanan exit there and come along past the the uh, the water plant and there's this huge flock of geese, a hundred Canadian geese, right down on the the hills side of the freeway. You'd think if they were by the bay, it makes sense, but they're not saltwater birds; they're freshwater birds, and yet there they all are. It's very funny. What are the conditions of bringing all those Canadian geese, a giant flock, down there? You can see them as you get off the freeway. So there they are, you know. And it's true for whales, it's true for people of all flavors, multitude of conditions. So we're called Zhongsheng, multitude born. The Buddha's talking about all of us. But here, that's not the term he's using. He's using fanfu, which means ordinary people. Ordinary people means not yet awake. A fanfu is different from a a sage. So an ordinary person is different from somebody who's already awake. And we were um, sitting up in the forest in Oregon looking at the stages of meditation called dhyana, the four stages of meditation, the four dhyanas. And what's it like to set out on the path to leave being a fanpu and become a become a sage. It's a long road. And what's neat about the Buddha Dharma is that he, in, in, at some point in the Buddha's teaching, when he was explaining meditation, he laid out every step very precisely. And I was uh, there, just for example, the names of the four dhyanas include things like the stage of happiness that leaves behind what ordinary people can experience. Li sheng shi le di. Number two, the stage of happiness where samadhi is born. Ding sheng shi le di. Number three is the stage of bl- wonderful bliss that leaves happiness behind. Li shi miao le di. And then finally, the last one is called the state of purity where false thinking falls away entirely. Uh, 
These are the names of the four dhyanas. And the point I'm telling you about this is, as I was explaining them two nights ago in, in Oregon, I was saying, here we have words like happiness, happiness, wonderful bliss, and purity, four states. And I said, this is not just good feeling. This is as precise as a recipe, let's see, as precise as instructions for learning how to operate a lawnmower or a chainsaw or a washing machine or a new modem. Okay, let's say you decide you're going to set up DSL. You're going to do high-speed internet in your home. Okay, you better get it right. Right? You got to plug in the power. You got to make sure that your incoming Ethernet cable connects into the modem. You got to get the right domains. You know the right IS. What is it? The DSN number and depending on your network. You've got to get all that stuff right or you can't log on. We just accept that, right? It's very precise. If your number, if your address is off by a digit, it, you type in seven and it's eight, nothing. It's dark. Doesn't, doesn't go, doesn't come on, right? So we're so used to this and yet the instructions for the four dhyanas are just as precise. The Buddha's not talking about fuzzy feelings when he says happiness. He's talking about very precise use of body and mind that then trigger responses that integrate your heart, your head, your spirit, and your body. And the result is incredible happiness. But the reason I'm explaining it this way is to say not random. And it's not kinda, it's precise. It's an operating manual for something that people have in their structure, in their equipment already, that allows us to transcend the world. The Buddha, it's said, on the night of his enlightenment, went through the four dhyanas and reached sagehood after entering the dhyanas. So what's it like to stop being a fanfu, an ordinary person, and go to become a shangri, sajri? Very precise. So he's saying ordinary people who have not done that have these qualities. And look at this. Look at what we have before we get to that stage of sagehood. And I want to say one more thing. At no point, it's important to say this, at no point in this list of what looked to me like negative qualities, at no point is the Buddha shaking his finger in our face and saying, bad, 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 bad meditator, no cookie, right? The Buddha is not just, you know, judging us and condemning us. There's no judgment here. He's treating living beings the way a doctor does. The doctor doesn't take your pulse and go, hmm, you're sick. Right? He goes, oh, hmm, let's see. I believe I'm detecting uh, an overabundance of fire. Uh, that is, uh-huh, that's affecting your liver. And then there's the boot, you know, the doctor is treating your symptoms as imbalances. The Buddha is talking about these qualities with no judgment. 
It's not, we're not getting scolded by the Buddha. We're getting diagnosed by the doctor. Because he's already healthy. The Buddha is in a state of health called Bodhi, awakening. No further disease. Ordinary beings let their thoughts go wrong. That's the keynote. The other that follow it are the subsidiary. They let their thoughts go wrong. Xin Duo, Xie Jian. What else? They're covered by a film of ignorance. Think of a film covering you. They raise the banner of pride and arrogance. Look at me, I'm flapping in the wind. They're trapped by a net of craving. Last week, I was when we read this, I was stumbling to try to describe a net, and uh, Master Dashing reminded me, network, right? As in internet. And I thought, oh yeah, we do have a net these days. It's not one that is knotted with string that you drop into the water to catch fish. It's not a tennis net or a volleyball net. It's a network. Oh, I know what that is. Many mm, computers and modems linked together by either virtual or real wires. Um, they travel the dense forest of flattery and deceit. That's where we started. That's where we stopped and we're starting tonight. They travel the dense forest of flattery and deceit until they can no longer extricate themselves. Flattery and deceit are like a forest because flattery comes out of my mouth is intended to deceive somebody into creating a self that is usually in the flattery is usually good or beautiful or really chic or just you or perfect or any of the words that flatterers use to butter up the person who's listening. And if you didn't say those words, none of it would happen. When you do, you create a self. From a cultivator's point of view, where the self is a problem, where the self is something we want to transform, to praise somebody else hurts them. Especially if people are vulnerable to praise and flattery. Most of us are. We like to hear kind words about ourselves. It's, that's nice to hear, especially if the person is your boss or somebody who you want to get something from. To have somebody say something nice about you, the ego goes, mm. stroke, stroke. Mm. You're establishing something more firmly that if you were really a Dharma friend, you would be working to reduce. Help people get past the big me in the middle. So flattery is harmful. It really is. And, and yet, it's really, you know, Shifu, Master Shrenhua would really point this out, and I was guilty of this a lot, of praising, even when it didn't come from my sincerity, but it was something to say and it helped people like me more if I praised them, I thought. right? And Shurfa would say, the real good 
friend doesn't tell you about what you do well. They talk about your faults. And it's like, that's hard to hear. Because why? If you, Sherfa would go on to say, if somebody does something well, they don't need you to tell them. It stands by itself. But if you tell somebody about their shortcomings, you're actually helping them. You're giving them something to grow into. They will always improve. They'll be better and better. Which is really a principle. But if you go around and saying, you know, actually I thought the way you sung, uh, you were flat on most of your notes and mm, those lyrics were trite, you know, and that didn't rhyme. Um, it was okay. Mm, you could really have done it better. If you say something like that to somebody who sings, they're going to be crushed, you know. And it's so much easier to just say, oh, wonderful, which is insincere and, you know, but people love to hear that. It's so hard to be a true friend to someone. And Shurfu didn't, and I should be precise, Shurfu didn't encourage us to go around popping holes in people's balloons and, you know, being famous for telling the painful truth. Not. He said, often, saying nothing is the right thing to say. If you have an opportunity and it's someone you know well who's not going to take offense, then you can tell the truth with the relationship established. But if you go around, you know, being, I'll, I'll be your good and wise advisor, I'll be your Dharma friend and tell you how you suck, you know, it's like, no, I don't think so. People don't like, they can't take it, you know. And besides, that sets up interesting karmic things for me, too. Um, but here's what we can do. If we hear somebody not praising us in a situation where you've given a presentation in front of your team, you know, or your, your employees or your, your assistants, be careful when people praise you. And if you hear somebody who doesn't automatically suck up and praise you, listen carefully to the things that person says. That, that may be the most valuable advice you can get. And it's rare, especially if these are people who are uh, junior to you on your team or people who don't owe you anything, people who, you know, don't, they don't stand to gain by sucking up, you know, by patting, they, they say, pai ma pi in Chinese. In, or Shiva would often say, giving somebody a tall hat to wear, patting the horse's rear end, or giving somebody a tall hat, all these images for praise and flattery. If somebody doesn't do that to you, their opinion is often really valuable. So it's not the case that we should try to be good friends to others and criticize them. That sets up a very interesting dynamic. You can be very lonely after a week of that. You know, Nobody will go near you. But if in an, an organic, actual um, situation where 
you're doing something in public, Scherfer would say, be very careful of the people who praise you. They may not have your best interests at heart. They may be out to manipulate you by your soft spot, which is love of praise. And certainly I understand that. I'm, I'm vulnerable to that. On the contrary, or let's see, no, on the same hand, people who don't do that, often those are the ones you want to listen to. Because praise and flattery are rarely useful. If it's good, it stands by itself. You don't need somebody to praise you. If it's bad and people tell you, that's an opportunity to grow, which is priceless. So, Shurva would say, true Dharma friends don't praise each other. Most of the time, it's insincere. When it's bad, it's manipulative. It's an attempt to give you a good feeling about the person so that they can get something from you. This is how Shurfu... Shurfu spent a lot of time talking about flattery and deceit as being things that people do. And um, growing up, in, I, I spent a lot of time in the theater world and in the theater world, there are, mm, because if you're acting a role, you're out there, you're very visible, portraying someone who you're not. In a performance, the performance is usually followed by applause. And if, you're, if you do a really good job, you get an ovation. Right, prolonged applause. So, the the coin of the realm, the, the the currency that you're using in theater, is approval. It's really direct. Right? It's really it's loud. You can hear it. And actors are vulnerable people by and large, because their livelihood depends upon portraying something that isn't true. How effective you are as an actor depends on how well you can throw the illusion of truly being somebody else in a situation. So there's lots of vulnerable individuals who crave the applause but don't necessarily have stable personalities that without the applause can get through the day. So lots and lots of flattery and deceit in the theater world. That was fabulous, JB. You know, oh, I loved it. And in fact, you didn't, but you might need that person to praise you back, you know, when it's your time, your turn on stage. So... Um, to go from that world where relationships are based on insincerity to a relationship where you actually can trust somebody's opinion and can hear hard truth, that's really rare. It's rare to be able to hear anything the slightest bit critical without 
wanting to come back or strike back. It's really rare. So a cultivator, this, these uh, praise and criticism are two of what are called the eight winds. And there's a Dharma list that says how difficult it is to not be blown around by the eight winds. Two of which, I won't go through the eight because that will take us over here, but two of the eight winds are praise and criticism. It's hard to hear praise and not be moved. It's hard to hear criticism and not be moved because that thing in the middle, the me that wants to think everybody loves me and doesn't want to think that I have any faults is really there. And so as, as much as I'm moved by praise, that's how vulnerable I am to being deceived, right? And as much as I can hear criticism and blame without firing back at the person who's telling me the truth, that's how much I can grow. And the ego doesn't like to be criticized. If you can take it, there's less ego. So how funny to have a real good advisor, a real Shandrusha around, who specialized in tearing down the ego of his disciples. Being around Master Shenhua, many people assume that, oh my goodness, to be there with the sage must have been so blissful all the time. Shifu was dispensing these pearls of wisdom that just guided your steps. Every step was full of light and just great integration with the bodhisattvas of the Dharma realm, right? Sometimes. <laughs> Not to say wrong, but sometimes. Most of the time, your balloon of the ego was getting deflated in very vivid ways. Being around a good and wise teacher was a lot like swallowing bitter kugua, bitter melon, without sauce. Being around a good teacher who really has his disciples' interests in mind is a lot like learning how to take criticism. And from the outside, you would think this, this teacher is hard on his students. From the inside, it's the kindest possible thing that he could do. Because when you get punctured by somebody who is teaching you without malice, he has no, no wish to harm you, they say there is real merit. If you can take it, but boy, is it hard to take. Shurfu would often scold us for things we didn't do wrong. Clearly, somebody else had missed an important letter and it had fallen down between the desks and so Shurfu didn't get the letter till the next day and it was the job of so-and-so Bhikshu to take the mail up and he had done it and Shurfu would blame me for having done it and I hadn't done it and he would do it, scold me fiercely and then watch my reaction. And as soon as I defended myself and said, it wasn't me, it was him. It's like, all the fire's gone. He would say, hmm. you know, like that couldn't take it. And it's, you knew that you had this feeling you'd failed your test because it was an opportunity to take a criticism 
and let the ego absorb it without defending. So interesting to be in the dynamic of teaching with somebody who understands praise and critique. And I remember um, there was a time when I was undergoing intense teaching like this. A really skillful teacher knows how much the student can take. And he will push you to that point and one step past it until you are about to crumble or blow up. And then, oh, all the pressure's gone. Like, you wonder what happened. You know, you're spinning in space. So, um, Sherpa had started me out in a graduate program. I'm now in my PhD program at the local seminary. And, of course, he's paying for it all without even a thought. He's paying the tuition. He's giving my, my education. And so he waits until first semester, about past the midterms, aiming for the final project in a 14-week semester. And that means, you know, 120-page paper that you've got to research and you've got, that's one of four classes you've got, studying full-time Japanese language instruction at UC Berkeley to, to get to the foreign language requirement and having to read a stack of books like this. And Shurfu announces to the assembly that after this, Guojun, that would be me, is now the editor of Vajra Bodhisi magazine and need to get the issue out on time. Furthermore, um, I will also take over the duties of secretary of the board of directors and be the editor-in-chief of Buddhist Text Translation Society. Get to work. And, you know, you're going blink, blink, blink. Uh, uh, let's see now. Let me see if I can count all those jobs you've just given me. Do you know how many books I have to read? He said, you know, he'd look at you with this big look like, you don't have a heart to propagate the Dharma? You know, it's like, you know, it's okay. So I'm now editor of the magazine with a deadline due with a printer waiting for 80 pages of the magazine. And I'm also editor of Buddhist Text Translation Society, secretary, and I've got my first semester term paper to turn in and I've got Japanese language every day and I've got six books to read, you know. And so, okay, and meanwhile, do the Sunday lecture because I'll be in L.A. So lecturing at ITI on Sunday and that's, you know, 90-minute lecture in front of 60 people who are like listening carefully to see what you're going to say. about. And all this stuff piles up all of a sudden and then, just at the point where you think, I'm not going to sleep. I just won't sleep. I'm sure if I meditate, I don't have to sleep. You know, stop the sleeping. And let's see, I won't eat because that's an hour I could use for, you know, reading. And you're in there negotiating how you're going to get all this stuff done with yourself. And right at that point, Shurfu blames me for somebody else's mistake. And, and then he's watching you know, to see what's it like to go into the pressure cooker? What's it like? And, of course, 
having no sleep and having all these demands, I exploded. <laughs> I'm sure you're waiting for me to say I passed my... No, no, I exploded. Sure, well, I didn't do that. That's not my job. You know, and suddenly he, he hung the phone up. And it's like I'm... You know, and I realize that the whole thing is theater. It's all designed to see what my boiling point is. To see if I can really take it. And around Shurfu, he would never say, when are you going to get enlightened? The word enlightenment didn't appear. What did Shurfu say? There are lots of empty seats down front, don't hide in the back. (laughs) Shurfu would say things like, what is cultivation? Cultivation is not getting angry. Shurfa would say that. You'd hear that, not, are you enlightened? Right? He would say, real Kung Fu is never getting angry. And so, of course, you know, here I am blowing up. Why? Because I had no cultivation. That's the truth. You know, just totally a wuss when it comes to cultivation. And so, you know, a week would pass and I wasn't sleeping and I was using the time to eat, to to study and just trying my best and feeling just, you know, and Shurva wouldn't talk to me that week because I'd failed my test, right? I blew up. I got angry at the abbot. I got angry at the at the teacher, you know, for blaming me for somebody else's mistake. Of course I didn't do it. He did. Okay. So, the semester progresses, getting down to finals week, and I had already forgotten about that teaching, but I was was really needing support from Shurfu, really needing strength, because... I was over my head. I'd never tried to do, I hadn't studied in, in 18 years. You know, when you're older and you try to do graduate work, the gears are rusted. You know, and you try to turn the way they did when you were 24 and they don't. You know, you're in your 50s and the gears get rusty. So I was really desperate. And right at the point where I was asking myself, I, I think I can't do everything I'm supposed to do. Shurfu called again. It's the first time I'd talked to him since the last scolding, right? And so he says, Guajan, Shurfu. And he started to scold me again. Why did you do this? You know? And it wasn't that I recognized it this time, but it was just that I was so tired and my mind was on trying to get one foot in front of the other I said, Shurfu, I really don't know. I, I'm sure I did that, you know. And it's just because I'm really covered over, you know. I'm, if I'm not jealous, I'm arrogant. I said, if I'm not arrogant, I'm lazy. I really see these because I can't, I can't do it all, you know. I said, it's, I, I understand that I have these faults. And there was no fire in my voice, no fire in my heart. And Shurfu said, Pass. <laughs> Click. <laughs> it was like, huh. 
you know, and suddenly I had this energy. And I, again, completely missed that it was a test and it was theater. But because I didn't come back with fire, it was, that's what he was listening for. And I was just too tired to fight to defend myself. In, in fact, whether or not the fire was out, I was just too tired, you know. But to hear him say, pass, click. And it was as if something had risen one notch. It's like that much progress. And it was such a surprise because I wasn't expecting either time. The first time when I blasted back at the teacher trying to defend myself. And the second time when it was like, yeah, I know, because I threw myself into all this stuff and I don't have it. I can't do all this stuff. No, not, not as strong as I thought I was. Okay. So he really valued no anger. And anger often comes from desire. And what was the desire? The desire is to be in charge, to be capable of doing all this stuff. I like the title, but when it comes down to it, I couldn't do it. I, f I didn't do any of the jobs I was supposed to do. I turned my paper in, but only because my uh, advisor took me in hand and said, you know, you haven't been a student for a lot of years, and let me show you how writing is done. You know, A, a man on the other side was really kind and saying, kind of like if I was a plumber, he'd say, well, here, hold the wrench this way. <laughs> you know, you, you don't know how to do it. So with help, I got through. But how interesting to... Uh, have a teacher who totally understands flattery and deceit and uses that. He, Shurfu, was really hard on flattery. And because in the world, especially the world I'd come from, flattery was a major tool to get along in the theater world. If you had a silver tongue and you could praise people, doors would open. Totally insincere, totally phony, but that worked. Praise people who's, who live on, right? And if you can do that, it's like, I knew it. I knew I was good. Yeah. You agree, huh? Yeah. Good, huh? Huh? Good? You know. And if you don't, it's like, you're not playing that game. So, anyway, in cultivation, that's phony. And it, it actually hurts because it keeps the ego intact. So it says, travel in the dense forest of flattery and deceit until you can't get out. You lose your way back to taking the ego down, to reducing the self. You build such a net of me that you lose your way back. So that's, the Buddha here is saying, yep, Living beings are just that way. That's the way they are. I was that way myself, said the Buddha. Don't you imagine people praise the prince? Oh, your highness. You know, your crown shines so nicely. You know, if you're the king or the king's children, the courtiers get along by praising who's above them, whoever it is. Okay. Xing Chan Kuang Cholin Punam Zhu Xin Yu Jin Ji Xiang Ying Busha. Their thoughts interact with stinginess and jealousy which they never abandon. 
Um, I talked earlier when we were in the um, early part of the sutra about jealousy. I had this huge awareness of how much jealousy was part of my makeup and I absolutely didn't believe it. Didn't think that I had a jealous thought. Mostly because I think when I was growing up my dad really valued athletics and I was more athletically inclined than my older brother. My older brother was an artist. He, he could sketch. I remember... Um, the movie Ben-Hur, has anybody seen? It's now a classic, Ben-Hur, right? Charlton Heston as Ben-Hur. That was a huge blockbuster back then. It was giant, you know, Hollywood cranked out this movie with all uh, the merchandise around it and all the build-up to it and the trailers back when. And my brother went to see the movie and back then when movies... Uh, like splashed you could buy in the lobby a book with the stars pictures you know kind of a memory book or a a souvenir so we brought back the Ben-Hur souvenir book which had pictures of Charlton Heston I even forget the name of the actress who was the, the, the female lead my brother took colored pencils and sketched all the actors lifelike as I'd, I'd never seen magic appear on a sketchbook before. I really envied my brother's artistic skill because he could, on a white page, right, in two dimensions, with pencils, he could make things come alive. And he had that, that real gift, and he still does. But he couldn't catch a football. And my dad valued athletic ability. So I grew up getting my dad's favor a lot because of athletic skill. My brother didn't because he had artistic gifts and genius. And my dad was okay with that, but it wasn't what he what he valued. So I grew up thinking that, you know, the world is just fine. Everything's good because my dad praised me. Right? Had no clue that I had jealousy until... After being a monk for 10 years, Shurfu reversed it. And there was a young monk in the monastery who Master Hua put over on top of me and gave him the job of dumping on me. Every word and every deed, there was something wrong with what I did. And this is some punk monk. He was not... He had uh, no particular qualities to be jealous of, but he was in charge of me and had, you know, very hard things to say about everything I did from the way I held my chopsticks to, you know, the way I sang, the, did the ceremony. And so that was hard. And guess what popped up in my mind? Jealousy, because Master Hua would praise this young monk and completely isolated me, didn't talk to me for months. If I answered the phone, it was him. You know, you, you know. And so he was pushing me out of the nest and trying to extract out of me this jealousy. 
which is what is called affliction. This is a fanal. This is not solid wisdom. It's a covering. It's what living beings have got, right? And if I was going down another year as a monk thinking everything was groovy, then it wasn't going to be it wasn't going to be solid. It wasn't intact. It couldn't be built on. It couldn't it was still there and it's got to be transformed. So a good teacher brought out of me this stuff that I had no idea was in there because I'd never had a situation where I had to be jealous of anything. So he made the situation and sure enough, jealousy tastes like copper. It comes out of the, the, the liver, right? It tastes green. Jealousy tastes bitter, bile, green. It comes out of the gallbladder. They say that's where the Chinese medicine puts it. They say the emotions and afflictions and the organs have a relationship. So I, when I felt jealous towards this person who was way younger than I was and had no particular qualities except he was in charge and the boss and his job was to tromp on me, I suddenly felt myself tasting this bitter flavor in the back of my throat. Amazing how a thought and the body can interact. Fear can make you tremble. Right? Anger can turn you white or black. And jealousy turns you green. Green with envy. You've heard that? Absolutely true. Absolutely true. So their thoughts interact with stinginess and jealousy, which they never abandon. That I could change that pronoun to say my. They constantly create the conditions for future rebirth. Um, what is that? Um, living beings say, or ordinary people, Fan Fu is who this is. Ordinary people are interacting with other people in a way that creates debt. Debts bring us back. Debt means you owe. You owe some. And it's not the case that we have to do that, but if we're not skillful, and that's the key word, unskillful behavior is behavior that interacts with killing, stealing, lust, and lying, by and large. If you lie to somebody, you come back until it's clean, until there's nothing there. If you break up a relationship, because of your selfish desire, you come back because you owe. Your behavior created that tie, a negative tie. If you steal, you owe. You come back till it's over. If you kill, you come back, you owe. And the model that I'm sketching out here says what? It says deeds go beyond the doer. That's so interesting. This is the fundamental principle of karma. Karma is, is a verb. Karma is neutral. It means action. And it's interesting because it's physics theory says, 
right? Newton said every action has an equal and opposite reaction. That's 19th century science. Buddha Dharma says absolutely true. That seeds we plant come ripe. So if you kill, you're planting a seed that will come ripe even after this body is gone. Because these seeds of karma ripen at different times. It's not that you can say, oh, this will come right there. It's you plant it and you owe it. And it may happen now, it might happen. There's things called instant karma, which is true, but you never know when it's going to come right. So deeds outlast the doer. It says they constantly create the conditions for future rebirth. If you kill, you may have to come back again to pay it back Pay your exactly back what what you did to the person or being or animal you killed. We were just up in Oregon looking at the Sharangama Sutra, which talks in precise terms. It says, if people eat sheep, says the Sutra, often they will come back as sheep in order to be eaten by the person, the sheep that they ate, that now come back as a human. And it's like, your head can ache trying to get all that mechanics straight. How does that happen? How does the, you know, human reincarnates as a sheep, sheep reincarnates as a human. The deed outlasts the doer. The deed is there in that seed form of action, which is neutral, but you did it. This, this entity, whatever is inside me, this body, is where the karma accumulates. And the theory says that everybody inside them, you, me, everybody, listening online, everybody, has this storehouse called the storehouse consciousness, which is where the seeds of behavior accumulate. Think of it as a, a gym bag. Think of it as a hard drive. Hard drive is a good analogy because you don't see your files, but they're there. They're encoded. They're in a series of zeros and ones, usually on a spinning disk, but it could be on a USB drive, which is solid state. They're encoded. They're in there, zeros and ones. You put it into the computer, and through the interface, up pops a file, up pops an image, up pops a movie that was there, although you couldn't see it. I mean, you could if you had the interface. It was there on the hard drive, but you didn't know it. We, everybody, has a hard drive where we store the zeros and ones of our behavior. Now, having said that about the, um, that we all carry these negative things that we do, it's also completely true that we carry the positive things that we do right there. Karma doesn't mean bad. Karma also means good at the same time. So, this is really interesting to think about deeds outlasting the doer because there's a phrase that, that Shurfa would tell us about people come to this world for a couple, for a variety of reasons, one of which is we owe. So, it's like we come back until that account is clear. Our credit and debit account. 
the Buddha in his last life as Prince Siddhartha still had three debts that he brought back with him. So karma outlasts sagehood. Right? The Buddha isn't free of cause and effect until he pays it all back. But there's another way. I said there's a variety of ways. The other way we come back is bodhisattvas come back by choice. They come back willingly to tie up debts, mostly wholesome or entirely wholesome with living beings. So there are two ways to come back. One is blown by the wind of karma and two is by the power of vows. You come back because you say, man, I would love to help out my dad, my grandfather. My grandfather was a butcher, personally speaking. I would love to come back and find out where my grandfather is and help him lighten that load of hatred that's following his soul, his consciousness. Every time he killed, he planted a seed that's going to bring him back in a painful way. I would love to intervene if I had what incredible power, you know, to talk about that. So, two ways to come back. One is by debts, both that are owed to you or that you owe, or if you're a bodhisattva, you come back because you kind of contract you want to you want to get involved and pay back kindness help others so in this world we can meet bodhisattvas who might be your mom who you know owed you a debt of kindness and she paid it back and here you are and she's raised you and paying back that debt and so as a child how important to repay kindness the parents recognize that this, your relationship with your child could be hugely beneficial for both of you. And this gets really kind of rich in there because the theory says that a child's job is to to recognize kindness owed them and repay it. But my mom, she actually, I tell you the truth, my mom has been here to eat enough so that she's actually stopped worrying about whether I'm eating enough. But it was a long time before she stopped asking me what I was eating. I've been out of her house since I was 16. I've been on my own all these years, you know, and yet she's still worried about my body as if she were planning the menu for tonight's dinner. Never mind that I don't eat dinner. She's still, you know, still tracking my diet. And I say, Mom, you know what? I'm concerned about you. You know, it's like, I'm really glad you're a vegetarian now. Are you eating enough protein? And uh, what are you doing? You know. And she does. She's concerned about her son's body. You know. I'm 60, almost 60 years old this year. You know. And it's like, Mom, you can actually put that one down, Mom. I'm doing okay. She hasn't asked recently because she's eaten in the kitchen here. She knows that I'm well provided for. 
she thinks that the food that's produced here is pretty good and she's not worried about me anymore that way. But only recently did she stop. So, the duty of the filial child is to get mom cultivating on her own. It's really, really hard, particularly for mothers, to let the child go and to recognize that they have to cultivate themselves. Right? Many, many, many moms will say, oh, I'm, I'm nobody, really. I'm just the mother of this bright child. You know, It's like, uh-uh. That bright child came through you, but they're a living being. You're a living being. When you go, when you die, nobody's going to judge you on your child. They're going to judge you on what you did with your body, mouth, and mind. You too are here because of debts owed, you know. So you get the point. The filial child's job is to gently, gently, gently get mom to start paying attention to her own bodhi resolve. Get mom to go for wisdom instead of your body, right? Like her job is done. You have to tell her or him or dad, you know, you can start thinking about yourself now. It's okay. I'm a functioning unit here. This unit is okay. You need to start thinking about what's the next step for you. You know, being a mom is not home yet, mom. You know, bless you. You know, I, I'm doing good. How about cultivating yourself without thinking about me first? I'm so glad that you do enough already, you know. Let's get you to Buddhahood, Mom. So, not easy. And it's not natural for a mom to not think about her children first. How wonderful that moms are built that way. But, you know, they, women can become Buddhas too. And Bodhisattvas. So you, the child needs to kind of mm, start that along. So, otherwise, what? The mom is simply creating conditions for further rebirth. There's interesting part of the Avatamsaka where you I, I haven't s- talked about this during the Ten Grounds so much, but there's a chapter that follows where there's a hero and that hero's name is Sudana, and he goes to 53 teachers, and of those 53 teachers, half of them are women. Right? So here's the Avatamsaka Sutra, the peak of the Bodhisattva path, where the power holders, the authorities, are women. I think that fact by itself is really significant. But the last of the women teachers, save one, is Lady Maya, the Buddha's mother. The mother of the prince, Siddhartha's mother. She died in childbirth. And she says, I have come back to give birth to countless numbers of Buddhas, as numbers, numbers as many as tiny particles of dust you know, in universes. So the Buddha's mother returns over and over. Talk about an affinity, right? Karmic connection. That's kind of mind-blowing, how to figure that one out. I haven't figured that one out myself, but it's like that's what the sutra says, that Lady Maya says she has been the mother to all the Buddhas over and over. 
she comes back. Not by karma, but by vows. She's that other kind of return by vows, but it's still mind-blowing. Okay. They constantly create the conditions for further rebirth. Um, I think I'm going to stop right there with the... um, I'll, I'll take the next sentence next week. But what I wanted to point to is what's coming up. The Buddha, uh, the Bodhisattva here, is continuing to explain what living beings are like, what ordinary beings are like. And again, let me repeat, he's not blasting living beings because he's had a bad day. He's not tearing living beings down because he's getting something out of mm, calling living beings names. That's not what's going on here. What's going on is... This is really clinical. This is really precise description of what is in our nature so that we can figure out a way to become sages. I told a story about not believing that I had a jealous thought until I was put in a situation where I got jealous and I had to figure out a way to transform it. Transform that jealousy. The Bodhisattva here is saying living beings have got all this dead wood in their nature. You have to poke at it, find the dry rot where the termites have gone in there. You've got to cut it out and replace it with, transform it into light, into wisdom. Notice the last sentence on page 67. Their torrents of desire, existence, ignorance, and views ceaselessly stir up the seeds of mind consciousness. This is psychology. The Buddha is saying, in the minds of living beings, this is how rebirth happens. This is how suffering happens. He goes on down to take us through what are called the twelve links. So here are the 12 links of conditioned arising. This is one of the primary basic teachings of the Buddha. It comes up next week. So we're going to go into the 12 links. And if you take a course in the university on Buddhism, chances are within the first couple of weeks they're going to say, Four Noble Truths, Eightfold Path, 12 links of conditioned arising. Right? That's kind of the ABCs of what the Buddha taught. Here it is. This is that, that list of 12 things. And the Buddha, uh, people, start over. people say that this particular formula, this description of what happens in the human mind as we think, as we come into being, that this is really the Buddha's original formula. They say this didn't exist before the Buddha spoke it. A lot of the Dharma are teachings that were in pieces around in India at the time. It's not that it's all unique. We share a lot with Hinduism and Vedanta and Taoism. There's a lot of shared teachings. It's wisdom that people had. right? The Buddha put it together in a unique way. These 12 links, totally unique to the Buddha.
They say this particular teaching is really the one of the huge contributions of the Dharma to to the to the wisdom of our tribe, you know, the wisdom available on the planet. So this is deep, and it explains how people come into being. It explains how also how to go back to wisdom, back to nirvana. So that's coming up. That's a preview of coming attractions. And um, wanted to point to that because this is the real stuff that we're getting into. This is deep. The Buddha is telling us what's inside and not to say, ha ha, you're stupid. You're bad, you're wrong. You're going to rebirth. So that we can look inside and say, oh man, I never saw that before. How can I transform that? What can I do about it? How can I go inside and heal the places that I'm hurting deep, 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 deep in my nature. Okay? There we go. Um, we have a lot to talk about. And I got the screen up and I just had an idea. I think maybe if we... That's such a big screen. If I put the projector here and don't try to move that screen, maybe it's big enough that everybody could see it without moving. You think? And that way it's, it's more or less flat and I can get the projector flat. We have a sloped floor and I've always been trying to get the brake on the projector cart and get it straight and it doesn't work very well. So maybe if I roll it over and put the cart right here, we can project it that way. First of all, let's transfer the merit because there are people who are listening from far, far away who it's probably three in the morning and they would like to transfer the merit and get some sleep. So... We'll do that first. that there are now a thousand uh, casualties in Taiwan from the typhoon and the conflict in Iraq is heating up. Certainly um, our transference is useful. So whatever 
cause, whatever situation requires prayer, this is the this is our Buddhist version of prayer. So please expand the measure of your mind and send it out as far as you can. May 